Millions of students across the United States are back in the classroom for a new school year, but many teachers have not returned. One estimate says there's a national shortage of more than 300,000 teachers and staff. That's from the National Education Association, the largest teachers union in the country. Later, you'll hear from the superintendent of LA schools. His district is a success story with a 99% fill rate and about a White House plan to recruit more teachers. But first, let's hear from a veteran teacher in rural Tennessee. Catherine Vaughn teaches art at Brighton Elementary School. She's worked as an educator for 17 years. She spoke with 1A producer Chris Remington about the challenges she's faced through the COVID pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic in March in 2020, when schools closed and went to virtual instruction, all of my after-school programs ended as well. Many teachers do additional jobs at their school, like teaching an after-school program or coaching, and all of those jobs ceased to exist from about March 2020 until school reopened the following year. So, in order to support my family, I ended up taking a job managing a car wash. Wow! Did I hear that right? A car wash? Yes, I managed a car wash、uh, close to my house for about a year until I started my maternity leave. And so that was on top of the the regular teaching that you were doing. Yes, I would actually bring my car wash uniform to school, and my students would see me come to school dressed as a teacher, and then leave as a car wash attendant and manager. Several of my students would come to the car wash just to see me. It was kind of fun. Catherine, that is unbelievable, and I, I have to ask the question: Considering how much work you're having to do, considering the amount of pressures that's placed on you as a teacher, have you considered leaving teaching for a different, maybe higher-paying profession? I think a lot of people are realizing that teaching is full of transferable skills to other industries. We're great at managing. We're great at probably doing something like HR. A lot of us have tech skills now over the last few years. So yes, the idea of leaving teaching has definitely appealed to myself. But you can't change the system from the outside, and I really feel committed to staying in the profession and making it a better profession for everyone, especially our new teachers coming out of college and prep programs. What can be done to remedy the teacher shortage in the United States, and how is it impacting education? We get into it after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To be a part of future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into the conversation. There are so many future educators out there who want to teach, but decide against it or decide to leave because so many obstacles stand in their way, and we've seen that this summer. We've heard so much about teacher shortages after COVID nineteen, but we know that this has been a problem for a long time. In response to a national teacher shortage, the White House has launched a task force. It's dedicated to building the teacher workforce in partnership with several private recruiting companies like Indeed, and it's led by First Lady Jill Biden. Biden visited Eastern Tennessee this week, along with Education Secretary Miguel Cardoza. They discussed a new proposal to transition school staff into teaching positions. Let's hear more on what schools like for teachers right now. Anya Kamenetz is a longtime education reporter. She's also author of the new book, *The Stolen Year: How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now*. Anya, great to have you back. 
Thanks so much for having me, Jen. Also with me is Paul Bruno. He's an assistant professor of education policy at the University of Illinois. Paul, we appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. And Annie Tan also joins us. She's a former teacher in New York City Public Schools. She's also an activist. Annie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jen. Anya, you spoke with teachers across the country for your book, The Stolen Year. How does Catherine's story connect to the stories you heard from educators across the country? You know, it was a tough pandemic for teachers, whether they remained in their jobs or whether they uh, had to leave. Um, Remote learning, I think, you know, I focus a lot on how difficult it was for families, but it was also incredibly difficult for teachers knowing that they were putting so much effort, pivoting their jobs, um, helping their students overcome, you know, lack of connectivity, lack of Wi-Fi in many cases. And for all the effort they were putting in, what they were often hearing was that the, the families were just not receiving the, the learning that they were putting out. And so it was really, really disheartening. Um, hybrid learning had its own stresses. Obviously, many, many teachers had fears about coming back to the classroom, about safety, um, and trying to combine and balance the needs of the, the students who were in the classroom and the students were at, who were at home was just an ongoing stress throughout the pandemic. Annie, what made you decide to leave teaching? So just as Anya said, there were so many things changing in the teaching profession, but uh, we teachers, as Catherine said in the interview with Chris, that um, we were willing to take up the mantle, but of course there were so many challenges. um, And as Anya said, around COVID safety, around making sure our students' social-emotional needs were met, uh, going through the traumas with them. You know, I had many students tell me they had lost a grandmother, a uncle, a godfather, and um, it was incredibly difficult to take all these things in while also, as you said, Anya, taking in our own personal lives um, as people. And I think the pandemic really shifted a lot of things for myself and other people of like, um, it is the amount of disrespect given to teachers right now worth it in the end. And uh, when Omicron hit in December and January 2022, um, I just saw more and more of my students get sick um, without much being done. And it made me question whether the school system would keep us safe um, and whether the school system was designed to meet students' needs, uh, social emotional needs when we were going straight back to standardized testing and other things. Um, So I needed a mental and emotional break. I, I hope to return to teaching at some point, but going back to the classroom every day was re-traumatizing, honestly. Paul, we heard from Catherine just a moment ago, and she's in a rural district in Tennessee. What are the primary challenges facing rural school districts across the U.S. as they've tried to hire new teachers? Yeah, I think that story was a really interesting one for hearing about some of, like, some of the specifics about where rural schools in particular struggle and how they struggle with some of these things. I think for a lot of rural schools, they're dealing with a, a complicated combination of challenges that make some of these issues particularly severe there. They're often um, not located close to teacher preparation programs, for example, and we know that teachers often like to work close to where they already live and where they've gone to school. Um, They often don't have uh, the same kind of resources uh, to compensate uh, uh, teachers. They're often not funded at levels that are sufficient for that. 
Um, and so they don't have those kind, if they don't have those kinds of resources to draw on, it's harder for them to uh, attract uh, teachers to those locations. And so that's pretty something we see pretty consistently in a lot of the data is that rural schools are a place where the shortages are often hitting the, the hardest. And that's been true uh, since well before the pandemic. Paul, when we use the term teacher shortage, we're really talking about two different issues. There are teacher vacancies, and then there are underqualified teachers. How many educators are teaching subjects they weren't trained in? Yeah, so that's a very good um, question. Um, And unfortunately, it's a little bit of a hard question to answer because, um, as some colleagues and I have recently tried to document, there's a lot of places where that, that information is just not readily available. Um, just or it's not uh, made public by states in a way that was easy for us to process. Um, we do have make some estimates um, that there are maybe nationwide, um, maybe something like 160, 170,000 teaching positions currently held uh, by teachers who might be considered underqualified in that way, so not certified to teach the specific things they're teaching. That's a very large number, certainly. That it works out to about 5% um, of the teacher workforce. That's probably a little bit higher now because some of our data is a little bit out of date. Um, But that's certainly also an important issue to be considering uh, in addition to the uh, vacancy issue. What does that mean for how students learn and and the long-term impact on their education? Yeah, that's a really important question. And the short answer is we don't know for sure. And it depends a little bit what we mean about teachers' underqualifications. So, for example, there's... um, a fair amount of research that suggests some types of what we might call underqualifications actually are not all that useful for predicting who is going to be an effective teacher. Certain sorts of like alternative certification routes uh, for teachers um, often don't seem to, it doesn't seem to matter a ton whether teachers are coming from one of those programs or a more traditional program, at least in terms of their impacts on um, students. Uh, On the other hand, uh, I think there's less, we know less about some other types of like emergency certifications or where people are coming in without certifications at all. Uh, And that might be a more serious issue, especially where in cases where teachers need really specialized uh, knowledge. But this is something that's also very hard to talk about also because different states have different rules for what counts as certification and underqualification. So even those numbers that we are able to come up with are very hard to talk about in a general nationwide uh, way. Now, Anya, school districts received more than $190 billion in federal stimulus aid over the course of 2020 and 2021 from Congress. That's more than four times what the Department of Education spends during a typical school year. How are districts spending those funds? Well, they're spending them slowly is one is one indication. Um, they are spending them on a variety of different things. There's no clear directives from the, from the education department as to how they should spend this money. And we should note that although, you know, many districts found themselves with vacancies, we've also seen that they are staffing up. So, so a report from RAND found that more than three quarters of districts have increased their number of staff above pre-pandemic levels. So a lot of times when we talk about the shortage, we're talking about vacancies that have been created because of a greater need. We need more substitutes, for example, or we may need more social emotional focused staff members um, beyond just teachers. Um, but, but the other thing, I mean, you know, there's not uh, the clear information, as as Paul kind of mentioned, about exactly how each district is going ahead and spending this money. And, you know, the money is time limited. So part of the problem here is if they use it to create full-time permanent staff positions, they're going to have to fund those positions beyond, you know, the, the next couple of years. And that's where a, district, a lot of districts perhaps have been hesitant to use that money to fill these staff gaps that we're talking about. 
Now, Annie, teachers have been on the front lines of conversations surrounding how to teach race and history, um, students' LGBTQ identities, books considered controversial by some. What impact do these issues have on teachers' experience in the classroom? Yeah, so I often think about it as just a thousand disrespectful uh, things that happen. And my career death is really a thousand disrespectful cuts. And to question our professionalism, after, especially after I've been in the classroom for 10 years, for instance, and questioning uh, teachers' um, abilities to you know, educate based on the curriculum that is provided for us um, is insulting. Um, and so when, you know, I think, uh, Miranda, Chris's uh, sister said that, you know, um, being it's, it's been insulting to be told to do a lot of things that may or may not be the best for students. Uh, we know that students need relationships. Uh, they need time to play. They need recess. Um, and to see a lot of these things not happening in the classroom and then to just have mandates from people who are not in the classroom has created decades of more and more disrespect um, and unfunded mandates that we teachers have to do on the ground um, that we don't see actually benefiting students on the ground, um, especially with test prep and other things of that sort. Um, so the addition of you know the fight against critical race theory, which most teachers don't teach anyway, um, because it's a college level concept, um, is just making things even harder to make classrooms communities uh, where students are accepted. And we do teach all students, including special education students and English learners. Anya, do we have a sense of how some of the politics surrounding education have affected whether teachers decide to, to stay or, or leave the profession? I mean, I think there's a spectrum of ways to, to answer that question. I certainly hear from teachers and, and um, at NPR, when it was there in the spring, we surveyed teachers, there was information that came out about, you know, violence and harassment against teachers by parents. And, um, you know, the level of kind of, uh, it, it seems like it's ratcheted up the dynamic and, and you see it in, um, you know, school board meetings, you see it in public comments on social media, and you see it in individual conversations that that teachers kind of have to field from parents who feel like, you know, during the pandemic, during remote learning, they maybe saw more about what was happening in the classroom. The, cl the, the closed door of the classroom was opened with Zoom. And there were many, many parents apparently who didn't like what they saw there and wanted it to change. But the tone that they're taking apparently with parents, a lot of teachers feel like they, they just, it's, it's above their pay grade to manage that kind of hostility. And so um, I do see it feeding in, and I understand what Annie says about a death by a thousand cuts. Uh, Paul, you were a longtime middle school teacher before transitioning into education policy. Why did you make that transition? Yeah, I mean, um, that's uh, that's a good question. I think about it a lot. I think um, for me, a big part of it was that I saw as I moved around between schools, just how different schools were in terms of the challenges that they faced, the resources that they had, how they were run, and even what my job was like. And those differences between the schools um, that I was working in really became interesting to me and became the kind of thing that I wanted to study. Why uh, different schools that I was working in could afford to pay me more, could afford to hire teachers more effectively, uh, and were managing their resources differently. That Those questions became super interesting, and I think they're particularly relevant now when we're talking about nationwide teacher shortages, which in reality, I think, affect different schools in very different ways. So um, briefly, what have you gleaned from your research so far about those disparities? 
Yeah, so <clears throat> I think in a lot of ways, the disparities and the variation in how schools are affected by staffing challenges are, in, in a lot of ways, that's the main story in my mind. Um, when we look nationwide, for example, state by state at the vacancy rate, we really find two things. One is that in a lot of states, we just can't get good information on what the vacancy rate for teaching positions is, at least not recently. Um, and secondly, when we can get that information, it varies a ton between states in terms of what their vacancy rates are. So on average, we actually find pretty low vacancy rates nationwide. Um, and as was mentioned before, that's, uh, that's often been driven really by d districts trying to hire new teachers as opposed to teachers leaving, which they don't really seem to be doing overall at a higher rate than they used to. But on the other hand, we find some states where those vacancy rates are much higher, uh, for example, in the, the southeast. Um, and you have to worry a lot more that some of these schools are being much more heavily impacted uh, by these things. And you also see that variation even within states. Different school districts, different schools can have very different success at staffing themselves uh, with teachers and other staff. And even within a school, uh, different teaching positions. Uh, some are much easier to fill than others. And all of that variation in a lot of ways is, I think, um, the most interesting and challenging uh, policy problem. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. Now let's get back to our conversation about the teacher shortage. We're hearing from many former teachers about why they left their jobs. Hi, I'm Shannon. I'm calling from Idaho. I'm a former educator, uh, taught for 16 years. And I think the current uh, conditions for education is something of a perfect storm. Hey, this is Caitlin from Durham, North Carolina. I spent five years as an early childhood special ed teacher in a public school. And I left because I not only had my kids from 8 a.m. to 4, sometimes 5 p.m. if their bus was late, without a planning period or a break. The whole concept of education in America needs to be completely rethought. Phoenix moment. We need to start over. It's not working. After I had my daughter, it was unsustainable to be a teacher. I miss the kids, though. I gotta say, I hope we figure this out. Last week, we were in Los Angeles for a live event, and I spoke with L.A. Unified Superintendent Alberto Carvalho about hiring teachers and the greatest issues facing the district. We began by talking about an Ed Week nationwide survey conducted over the summer. It found nearly 75% of principals and school administrators said there weren't enough applicants for unfilled teaching and staff positions. But Carvalho's school district reached a 99% fill rate at the start of the school year. I asked him how he did it. We began our recruitment process much earlier. We cast a much wider net in terms of targeting uh, colleges, universities, colleges of education, HBCUs nationally. Uh, secondly, uh, we made a decision last year that we would be looking internally for individuals who had left the classroom recently, who were teachers but were assigned quasi-administrative responsibilities and engage in a credential certification match to the subject area or grade level that was at that point vacant. So we developed a, a list of over 700 individuals internally that could be redeployed to schools on uh, on a basis of, of critical need. I'm talking to you while 1A is in Los Angeles, and my Lyft driver um, yesterday was a former special education teacher in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. And one of the things he told me was that he left the profession because he could not afford to be a teacher. And this is one of the teachers you need. He's a special education teacher. The district has a shortage in that space. So what incentives are available for teachers to relocate 
to special education classrooms to work with students who, who need that support? We have a teacher crisis in our country. If we do not significantly improve increased compensation, if we do not improve the working conditions of teachers and provide the necessary support, particularly for teachers who are tasked with teaching special populations, underserved communities, if we do not provide workplace guarantees that take into account the very high inflation costs in communities like Los Angeles, then we're not going to be able to recruit or incentivize or retain the teachers we have or teachers that we need. So how do you do that? How, how do you increase that? Yeah, currently in Los Angeles, we have negotiated and continue to offer uh, recruitment uh, incentives for teachers, uh, particularly teachers who accept assignments in high-need schools as high as $5,000. We do the same for school nurses, uh, for which there is also a critical shortage. During the pandemic, particularly, uh, we provided professional development, financial incentives, additional days of training, all uh, compensated opportunities that actually elevate the earning potential of teachers. I believe the LA Teachers Union is looking for a 20% raise over the next two years. Is that something you support? Uh, We support uh, increasing uh, compensation for our teachers in a holistic way. I'm very, very happy to report that 50% of the negotiations have been completed, meaning uh, every single element or issue dealing with health care protection has already been negotiated, not only with the teachers union, but with every single employee union. But but does 20% sound, does that sound reasonable? Again, my driver yesterday said he made more money driving Lyft than he did as a special education teacher in LA. So is 20%, considering the cost of living in this area, is that a reasonable ask? I think the 20% that uh, has been requested by the union is over a two-year period of time. I've gone on record in saying that, uh, that we have minimally a responsibility and an obligation to absorb the full impact of inflation this year. And the level of inflation in Los Angeles is 9.1%. So I am one who believes uh, that a financial package that at least absorbs that in the first year and continues that into the second year is not only fair, but it is indispensable for us to be able to maintain the workforce we have and be able to recruit the workforce that we need. When we're asking teachers to do so much, so many cracks were revealed in our educational system during the pandemic, which we're still experiencing. And as you said yourself, teachers are facing just enormous pressure and criticism and classrooms are being increasingly politicized. Mm -hmm. How do you convince someone to go to college, possibly accrue student debt, become a professional in education, and not feel like they can make ends meet? Well, I, I hope I'm able to convince two sets of people. Number one, the ones you're speaking of, current teachers or prospective teachers. Uh, And I hope to convince them to come into this profession, obviously, with a better compensation scheme than what has historically been seen, better workplace protections, support, professional development, and dignity and respect. But let me try to convince also those who actually hold the key to that, federal and state appropriators, those who make decisions regarding critical investments into education. I want to convince those individuals who, quite frankly, appropriate what is often inadequate funding to support education. How much of this is within your power as a superintendent? Uh, You're in contract negotiations right now, so arguably you're at that table. But 
other elements that may drive people out of the profession or may discourage them from entering it, how much of it can you control or or shift realistically? Obviously, I do not control state, city, or county uh, political decisions uh, or their own budgets. But I think that being at the table and considering possible solutions, which include additional state and federal incentives that would perhaps offset the cost of college education, providing for a reduction or elimination of college debt or prospective uh, college costs to the extent that candidates would agree to a certain number of years of contract in public education. Another idea, considering the escalating cost of, of housing, is uh, number one, financial incentives that would subsidize workforce housing opportunities for teachers. Secondly, additional investments in cities and counties and communities to create more housing units that would be uh, dedicated or earmarked for first responders. <laughs> that means you know nurses, EMTs, uh, teachers, individuals that are indispensable to quality of life in a community. Superintendent Carvalho, thank you for speaking with us. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was Los Angeles Unified School District Superintendent Alberto Carvalho. Annie, as a former teacher and someone who hopes to one day return to the classroom, what's your response to Superintendent Carvalho's comments and his vision for the school district in L.A.? Yeah, so, you know, as I was thinking back on the pay question you had, we teachers don't come into this profession thinking that we're, we're going to be paid millions. It's not like we value power and money and all that. We want to make a difference. And all my students that I've taught to read and to be confident in themselves, like that is a reward. But if there's not the respect there, if there's not the training, I think what he said about training and dignity and respect is so important. Um, and if there's not a way to live on that money, then it becomes impossible really to continue and... Uh, there also needs to be uh, money for mental health recovery and healthcare, as he said, right? That there are a lot of teachers that are suffering um, because there is something called compassion fatigue that, uh, like flight attendants, um, we are, you know, there was a school shooting. I, I taught in Sunset Park uh, April 12th, and there was a school, uh, there was a shooting on the subway. I'm sorry. And I had to hold in all of my emotions and pretend to my students that everything was okay for the entire day. Um, and we, we hold in so much of what our students and their families do and are, right? And we take in their progress and their triumphs, but also their sadness. Um, and so we need to be paid respectfully and we need to have conditions uh, that uh, treat us respectfully as well instead of just putting unfunded mandates on us that uh, may or may not serve kids correctly. Um, so I, I'm happy to hear he's uh, willing to take on the role of inflation. And I hope my New York City uh, Teachers Union does that as well and fights for uh, raises commensurate to inflation, which uh, really affected all of us in this society. Paul, you, you talked about the complexity of this issue and, and how it, the answers, the solutions can vary so much depending upon the state you're in, the district you're in. But if we're trying to think big pictures about big picture about solutions what can you offer us uh so i mean i think one thing i would say is maybe 
that's um, the wrong question to ask in some ways. Sure. And I think what we should primarily do is to ask whether the solutions that we're proposing are tailored to and match the specific problems that we have. So I think that's true at every level. So whether you are a concerned parent or family member asking about how your own school or district is navigating uh, these staffing challenges or whether you are looking at your state legislator, uh, asking them uh, the solutions that you're proposing. Can you show how they're related to the specific kinds of staff that we're having a hard time hiring and how they're going to help in the specific schools that are struggling to hire them? Because I think that question is really the one that's going to make sure that we're using our resources to the best of our ability and addressing the problems where they really exist. So I realize that's, a, that's, an, that's a, maybe not a fully satisfactory answer to your question, but I think it's a helpful starting point. So that's a starting point. But what do we do about the other piece we've been hearing, teachers feeling pressured, um, feeling political pressure in the classroom, feeling unsafe in the classroom? What about that piece of it? What questions should we be asking there? Yeah, I think that's a challenging question because it's always been a very thorny problem in um, education generally about how do you uh, improve the working conditions of teachers. I think that's one of the reasons that we often focus on things like compensation uh, is because it seems like a, a manageable problem. We sort of know what how to pay teachers and what that looks like. Um, on the other hand, it's often less clear what you can do in these situations where the, the work itself... Uh, is so exhausting for teachers. I think this is a case where potentially more staff really could help if they can be found to sort of lighten teachers' workloads. Uh, And I think there's roles for administrators here and school leaders in terms of the extent to which they are able to uh, protect uh, their classroom teachers from a lot of these external political pressures. I think you certainly see, something I think is important to, to mention is you do certainly see very concerning increases in the rate at which teachers report feeling these pressures, including these political pressures, feeling emotionally burned out. That's that's certainly an uptick. I think it's interesting that at this point, we don't have clear evidence that that has led to an increase in actual teacher turnover, uh, which in fact looks very similar to before the pandemic and still looks like uh, it might be lower than it is in a lot of other occupations. So I think there's worrying signs here. I don't think we're quite at the point of panic yet, but it's good that we're thinking about what might need to happen to make sure these problems don't escalate. Annie, I want to give you the last word, what do you want us to remember as we're asking questions about how our schools function, how we can better support teachers? Yeah, so as Anya said earlier, sometimes we teachers are told to just close the classroom door and teach. And that that's kind of been a message reverberating. I would just have loved to be able to teach. Um, there were so many changing uh, things through the pandemic. There were so many mandates. There were so many things that were happening that had nothing to do with the students in front of us and their well-being. I d- wished I didn't teach in a windowless classroom uh, earlier last year. I wish there weren't a hole in the ceiling. There needs to be better working conditions and respect for our teachers and to lighten our workloads so we can do our job, which is teaching our students, which who we love so much. And I hope to be able to get back to that one day, but I need to recover first before I can fully have that creative joy again in the classroom with my students. That's Annie Tan. She's a former teacher in New York City Public Schools and an activist. Also with us, Paul Bruno, Assistant Professor of Education Policy at the University of Illinois, and Anya Kamenetz, a longtime education reporter and author of the new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A. 